are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dan Diaz and helping to share the story of his beautiful wife, Brittany Menard. In the spring of 2014, Brittany learned that she had terminal brain cancer. Brittany was only 29 years old. After careful assessment of her prognosis and end-of-life options, she and her husband, Dan, moved from their home in California to Oregon, which was one of five states at that time that authorized death with dignity. After moving to Oregon, Brittany approached Compassion and Choices, the nation's leading end-of-life choice advocacy organization, and asked how she could help advocate for more options for terminally ill Americans. Brittany agreed to be interviewed on film regarding Death with Dignity. Her first video, posted on October 6th in 2014, was viewed more than 9 million times in its first month and transformed the conversation about Death with Dignity. Dan, thank you for joining me today and for sharing Brittany's story with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Leading up to the spring of 2014, when Brittany was first diagnosed, what led to her realizing that something was wrong and then ultimately the doctors diagnosing her? So it was actually um, taking a a slight step back further. um, Brittany and I were married in September of 2012, and it was a few months after our wedding. Brittany started having headaches. So this would be um, early 2013. Those headaches They'd wake her up in the middle of the night. She'd start throwing up, be unable to go back to sleep. We, we were searching for you know, the reasons for these headaches. And, and she went to see a specialist. That specialist said that she just likely was having migraine headaches. They didn't do a scan or anything. They prescribed this medication for migraines, which oddly kind of seemed to work um, for a few months. But by the end of that year, 2013, the headaches were back. And it was actually New Year's Eve. Brittany and I were in wine country. Um, It was the Christmas gift that Brittany had kind of given to the two of us. It was a weekend away in wine country. And that day after lunch, she starts throwing up and um, the pain was just getting too intense. And I said, you know, sweetie, we, we, we have to go to the emergency room. So we did. And then that was the first time that they did a scan and Shortly thereafter, an MRI, and it revealed a massive brain tumor. Um, So it was actually New Year's Day of 2014 when we discovered that tumor. Brittany endured brain surgery just 10 days later at UCSF Medical Center. And at that point, they told Brittany that she had three to five years to live. Um, It was a low grade, a grade two astrocytoma glioma. Uh, But as you mentioned, you know, she's 29 years old. We were looking to start a family and we were just settling into our lives with one another. Um, Unfortunately, just two months later at the first follow-up MRI, so this would have been that spring timeframe that you mentioned, um, that's when the tumor suddenly showed signs that it was growing aggressively, indicative 
of a, GBA, a glioblastoma multiform, um, the most aggressive form of brain cancer. And it was at that point where they informed her uh, that six months was all the time she had left. Now, you mentioned that she had underwent brain surgery within 10 days of finding this all out. Were there any other options? The surgery, the goal of that surgery, which is what it accomplished, it was essentially to debulk. It was to remove the tumor material that they could safely get to in order to create enough space in her skull so that the current symptoms that she was suffering from, so that those symptoms would subside. At that point, the other, um, again, because it was a low-grade tumor, we were researching, of course, any clinical trial and treatment options of chemotherapy, radiation, et cetera. But those with all the oncologists, neuro-oncologists that um, we are um, collaborating with, uh, those at that point were not um, recommended. Um, and Brittany did her research and it was determined that they can get the, um, the um, success of, or the likely success of some of those treatments is down to the DNA level of, of the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain chromosome deletions that if a person has those deletions, they will respond better to certain types of chemo radiation. Unfortunately, Brittany did not have those deletions. So while those treatments, those might give her two or three months on the back end, she would start feeling miserable right away um, as a result of those harsh treatments. And with the size of the tumor that she was battling, the, uh, the radiation, it would have encompassed two-thirds to three-quarters of her brain. Mm. Um, and, you know, so in addition to the scalp burns and the cognitive deficits and, right. and, then, the, and then you throw the chemotherapy on there, you know, the nausea, the vomiting, mm. they said the things that Brittany had in mind that she wanted to do with the time she had left, all of her medical professionals are saying, you're not going to have the energy to do those things. Um, you know, you're not going to feel like... Brittany's passion was being outdoors and they said, you won't, you're going to feel somewhat shackled to the hospital for the treatments and also for the way that you're feeling as a result of those treatments. Um, So we did research every option that was out there and Brittany was contemplating ones that would allow her to still remain Brittany. Um, you know, to not just be in a state where she's so heavily, you know, sedated or feeling miserable for the few uh, months that, that she would have left. That was very important to her, um, that, that she get to live her life as herself. Now, tell me about the journey to the decision that you and Brittany made to move to Oregon and how she reached that decision. Brittany, when she was an undergrad, um, she graduated from UC Berkeley, and then she later got uh, a master's degree in education. She was a teacher. Uh, she got her master's from UC Irvine. But while she was an undergrad, in one of her classes, they had talked about um, organs. It, it's called the Organ Death with Dignity Act. That's the name of the law. And at that point, it had been available in Oregon for 16 years. 
And so Brittany was aware of it. And this was when we were still in the hospital and even before her surgery, mm-hmm. where she brought, the, she brought up the topic to me and said, Dan, you know, Oregon has this Death with Dignity Act, and it allows an individual to kind of take back a little bit of control from, in this case, cancer. Um, and the individual gets to determine how their final few days days on this green earth play out um, specifically, you know, you apply for qualify for, and once you're granted that prescription, um, then, and it's a sleeping medication. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but it allows that individual to live their life as long as possible. But when the suffering gets to be too great, where modern medicine can no longer help control what she is experiencing, um, then that patient gets to make that determination. So Brittany brought that up to me very early on. For me, not knowing about that legislation, and you know, 20 years ago when I was in college and lifeguarding in this, I was an EMT, and I had never heard about Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, the ideas of, well, no, palliative care and hospice and And that's, you know, here in California, why would we move to Oregon? But after doing the research and, and, and that conversation with Brittany, I recognized, no, this is a totally separate and unique um, program that at that point was available in Oregon, Washington, Vermont, Montana, Uh, New Mexico had it uh, temporarily, um, but uh, it was through their court process and, um, essentially there was, there were four states where the legislation had passed. Okay. Um, and so after researching that and having that conversation, I found myself thinking, well, if the roles were reversed, if I was the individual who had a brain tumor, the size of what Brittany was facing, I would have been saying the same thing to her, um, which was essentially, you know, she told me, she says, Dan, we will continue to, 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 to fight this cancer. But if things get bad, we may have to move to Oregon just to ensure that her dying process can be gentle. Um, and so that's that's what that conversation was. Yeah. Now, once you moved to Oregon, um, Brittany, Brittany decided to bravely share her story with the Compassion and Choices. And um, that had a huge response. What what made Brittany decide that she wanted to share her story with the world? For Brittany, the idea that we had to leave our home. um, I mean, imagine you've been told you have six months to live Mm -hmm. and the way that the illness that you have may end your life is going to be horrific. And and I, I can't understate this or I can't, overstate this, I guess, (laughs) enough that Mm -hmm. the fear of being tortured to death, if that brain tumor was allowed to run its course, I mean, that was the one thing that terrified her. Mm -hmm. The reality that she would have to endure pain that could not be alleviated with morphine. Dilaudid is four times stronger than morphine, and Bernie was on some pretty hefty doses of Dilaudid. Mm -hmm. Uh, The seizures were becoming increasingly frequent and severe. The probability that she goes blind as the tumor grows and puts pressure on different parts of the brain, the likelihood that she would lose the ability to speak, write, communicate altogether, because it's not uncommon 
for a brain tumor to cause a stroke. And depending on what part of the brain is damaged uh, due to the lack of oxygen during that stroke, mm-hmm. the person could lose motor function, the ability to stand, walk, swallow. And, and that's where Brittany, you know, partial paralysis was likely, complete paralysis a possibility. Brittany said, I will not die that way. She said, you know, why, why should I be forced to? For her, all she wanted was the, the option and, and the hope that she wouldn't have to utilize that option. That's always the hope. But for her, she just wanted to know that if modern medicine, it got to a point where modern medicine could not keep her um, from suffering through all of these things. And anybody can do a simple, simple search on the Internet. Um, and, and, and you'll see the, the horrific symptoms, the ones I just listed that a person might endure as they're dying of a brain tumor. For Brittany, the reason she spoke up is because she thought that us having to leave our home in California after being told you have six months to live, the injustice of that. And, and that's what we had to do. We, we packed up half of our house in California into a U-Haul truck Brittany had to find a house for us to rent on Craigslist in Portland, Oregon. Um, she had to establish residency, find a new medical team. We said goodbye to our friends and family, mm-hmm. and we drove 600 miles. That was something that just, it, it, that was the time that we wanted back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so she spoke up because it's that whole, you know, be the change that you want to see. Right. She spoke up as an attempt um, to advocate for any terminally ill individual in her, in her predicament so that they would never have to do what we did of, of leaving home like that. Um, And so, yes, working with compassion and choices. um, They put that first video out there, as you mentioned on October 6th, Mm-hmm. And the amount of media attention that it received was quite overwhelming. It was never Brittany's goal mm-hmm. to be the face of this movement. That's a label that the media attached to her. Mm-hmm. Brittany simply wanted to affect or influence legislators. She wanted her message to get to elected officials so that they would recognize that this legislation needs to be passed in more states um, so that nobody would ever have to go through what, what Brittany did. What was her reaction to all of the media attention and the impact that she was making? I remember that day, October 6th, we were in that, we were up in that, the, that house in Portland and um, our, her telephone and email and mine as well. Um, friends that were on the East coast. Cause of course they're five hours ahead. <clears throat> I'm sorry, three hours ahead. Um, they were reaching out to us saying that they had seen Brittany's photo and her story on CBS and CNN and ABC and the Yahoo newsfeed and everywhere. And for the next two weeks, Brittany decided that with the, energy that she had um, because as I mentioned, she is getting sicker and those seizures are getting worse. Um, But with, with the energy that she had and on days where she felt okay, that she would try to 
affect change. Um, and she was aware because of the amount of attention that it received that her, her story, her case, that it had shifted this conversation. The impact that Brittany had on the medical community mm-hmm. of a, a bit of a paradigm shift that it's the patient, the patient, the, their concerns, their issues, that needs to be fo- the focus. That, that's what's paramount. Um, and I have come across you know, physicians that by and large, they'll say, thank you so much. And it's about time. We need this legislation because each of those physicians can think back in their own practice um, over their careers where there have been patients that they have been unable to keep comfortable at end of life. On occasion, I'll come across a physician and I can tell they feel <laughs> uh, maybe a little threatened. Um, and, and to be clear about this next point, Brittany had a wonderful palliative care team and the, the services or, or that, that we received from hospice, that was immeasurable. But on occasion, there are physicians who I think they do feel threatened by it. The kind of old paternalistic view of a doctor telling you when you've suffered enough and then hooking you up to a morphine drip as, as that person experiences potentially a pretty frightening dying process, you know, including hallucinating and, and everything else. Brittany refused to accept that. Mm-hmm. And I think because of who she was, you know, two things happened. Her... The fact that she's 29, this well-spoken, certainly attractive individual that the media could could latched onto, but more so that the public could they they could associate with her, they they could relate to her because in Brittany, they saw a person that could be any one of us. It's not a geriatric 92-year-old, you know, turn those numbers around. It's a 29-year-old, right? Um, and and so that was occurring. But then also from the medical side of things. Yeah, here is this determined individual who she was her own best advocate and she would push back uh, at certain appointments with with clinicians. And it was something to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she would have doctors kind of back on their heels because of how much research she would do into any treatment that they were recommending for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they would be surprised and, and she's using the terminology and vocabulary that they, they were, they would be amazed. Right. Yeah. So it, it did really shift this conversation of end of life care. Right. Now in one of Brittany's interviews with compassion choices, she talked about how she was afraid that if she waited too long to make the decision to take the prescription, um, to, to make the choice to end her life, that she feared that her autonomy to make that choice may be taken away by the disease because of the nature of her cancer. Talk to me a little bit about that and the process for the medication um, and and the need to be able to take that medication on her own. That's right. So um, in order in order to qualify for this, two physicians independent of one another have to agree this person is terminally ill with six months or less to live. 
That person has to be mentally competent. They make the request both verbally and in writing. There is a 15-day waiting period. There are witnesses involved. So that's the process to just qualify for it. The biggest safeguard is that the patient has to be able to consume that medication on her own. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that is given to the patient through an IV. That that's euthanasia, right. and and I'm and I'm, I'm you know I emphasize that just because the opponents very very regularly try to conflate money the waters and and make it sound as if it's a scary thing. No, it's it was a sleeping medication. Cecobarbital is the name. It's been around for over 80 years, but it's simply taken in such a high dose that within five minutes of taking the medication, Brittany fell asleep very peacefully. And within 30 minutes, her breathing slowed to the point where she passed away. But the one thing that she is risking, um, you know, as, as the symptoms get more intense is that her ability to consume that medication on her own, if she does suffer a stroke, and she's now finds herself paralyzed, um, unable to swallow, unable to take that medication. It, it, it's a powder. It, there was a process to it. There's 100 capsules. Those capsules have to be opened. The powder is emptied into a glass. It's mixed with about five ounces of water. And Brittany has to be able to consume that. Mm-hmm. If she loses that ability, then she would be stuck, basically trapped in her own body, um, dying as a suffering mass in bed with tubes coming out of her because mm-hmm. of course, you know, the body's still draining certain things. And again, Brittany had done that research and, and just refused. She says, no, that will not be the way that I die. Right. Endings matter. And we, none of us get a dress rehearsal for this. And, and for Brittany, she did not want that tumor to dictate how things would play out. Um, so, it, it was that, you know, constant thinking through, okay, when is the, the day? Um, and I have to say that I think a patient, when you are terminally ill and you're no longer living through your days, but instead only suffering through them, you know, and, and that's what was occurring in Brittany's case, a patient does start to recognize that they are, you know, actively in their dying process. And so Brittany, she lived as long as she possibly could, but um, she decided her day. And and that was the day that she was able to pass away gently. Mm-hmm. Now, how did Brittany know? I know she chose November 1st was the day that she chose to take the medication. How did she know that the, it was going to be that day? Well, and I'm glad you brought this up just so I can clarify this. Brittany was trying to live to November 1st as a goal to live to that day and beyond it, if possible. Uh, And the reason she chose that day is because she was trying to live to celebrate two specific events. The first was our wedding anniversary, which was at the end of September. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the second was to celebrate my birthday, which is October 26th. Mm-hmm. So for Brittany to make it through the month, the months of September and October, that was her really tolerating the increased symptoms that I mentioned, the, the, the seizures, the nausea, the vomiting, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so November 1st was by no way any sort of you know, deadline or something. It literally was a goal for her to say, can she live 
to November 1st and, and continue beyond. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the media took that and they made it sound as, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, regardless of what's occurring, mm-hmm. November 1st is going to be the day that this woman dies. That is not true. It just so happens that it did end up being November 1st because, well, I mean, she had a small seizure that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, she, the, the seizures that she had been having, the full grand mal seizures, she had had three of those um, over the preceding weeks, and I mean, they were horrific. Yeah. Um, but the, the pain that she would feel at the base of her skull, she would sleep with this, like this beanbag microwave. We would take this pillow and microwave it because she said that that would help mm. um, so that she could sleep for a couple hours that night. Um, so November 1st was her attempt to celebrate those two meaningful dates, but it was in no way any sort of deadline. It uh, was something that the media took and they spun it in a way that, um, you know, they should not have. Right. Now, did Brittany have any final wishes or desires regarding how her story would be told or the continuation of her advocacy? Um, so she, yes, she asked of me, um, if I would help to pass legislation in other states, um, when Brittany died, there were only four states with this option, and we're now up to 10. The promise I made to her was exactly that, that I, I would help work on passing this legislation. And as far as her story, she, well, very clearly in her will and um, her document said, Dan, I leave my name, likeness, and image and all of that to you. Yeah. And she um, insisted that I safeguard it mm-hmm. um, because, as you can imagine, over the last five years, right. I've had a lot of people approach me and say that, oh, they want to tell the Brittany Menard story. And mm-hmm. uh, I've that is something that I, very, I take very seriously and keeping um you know, anything related to Brittany, making sure that it's accurate, making sure that it would meet with um, her approval. Right. So. Well, we really appreciate you, Dan, for being with us today and sharing Brittany's story with us. It's it's clear when you speak about her, how much you love her and, and how your love for her continues in your work as a patient advocate. And I'm excited um, to continue our conversation in our next podcast where we're going to focus on the advocacy work and how you continue to fulfill your promise to Brittany to advocate for medical aid and dying and death with dignity. Um, you can read more about Brittany at thebrittanyfund.org. Um, thank you all for listening today to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or colleague, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and find all past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much.